Hello, and welcome to Quest, a vineyard church where we experience life as friends with faith through encountering God, loving others, and making a difference in our community. If you're new, there will be information at the end of this podcast where you can plug into Quest in person or online. Now let's dive into this week's teaching. Our Advent series this year is called Who Needs Christmas? We value the tradition of Advent around here because we just think it's a time to slow down in the midst of the busyness of everything, to prepare and remember the true meaning of Christmas and the true meaning of life for that matter. Advent actually means arriving or a coming, and it really helps us remember that God follows through on his promises. He followed through on his promise to send Jesus 2,000 years ago, and he's going to follow through on his promise again to send him when he comes again the second time. As we start today, let me, let me get into it this way. Anybody here pregnant? Anybody have somebody they know in their family that's pregnant? Yes, congratulations, okay? That's awesome. So here, here's the deal. There's so many wonderful things about having babies and children, including the naming process. Now, I remember when we were going to have our first child back then, ultrasounds weren't quite as good, and they told us we were going to have a girl, but all most of you here know we had a boy. It was quite a surprise. The problem uh, was that most of the shower gifts we got were for girls. So Derek had to be carried around in a pink snuggly, and I had to constantly be saying, no, really, he's a boy. Really, really, seriously, he's a boy. Uh, we actually didn't have any boy names picked at all, so Derek went home from the hospital as blank baby boy Ottleman. No name. Trust me, uh, try to have the names picked beforehand. It's a lot easier with all the paperwork to get that done to make sure they get named correctly. Just, just, just a little hint here. Picking name is hard. There's so many rules, aren't there? I mean, anybody your spouse has ever dated, you can't use that name. Anybody your spouse or your siblings or your parents didn't like, like the class bully or the coach or the teacher or somebody they thought was odd or weird, all those names are off the board, right? It can be really hard. It actually gives me a lot of compassion and understanding for, the, you know, there's this trend where people start uh, today where people make up the baby names. And it's just you get all these interesting names nowadays. My dad actually was uh, the fifth of sixth in a family. My grandparents were, were Lawrence and Luella. So they wanted all their kids' first names to start with L. So the joke was my dad came from one L of a family. Uh, by the time they got to number five, they were running out of names. And so they made up my dad's name, and uh, some people have laughed about that over the years. I actually get a lot of humor around people's names, like someone named their daughter Anita Man. There's a problem with that, isn't there? Another person named their daughter Lois Price. Destined for Walmart, right? Sometimes the problems with names emerge because uh, you marry someone, like a, a gal named... Helen married a guy with the last name Back, so 10 years into the marriage, his big joke was, I've been to Helen Back. I think one of the worst that I've ever heard, uh, they named, somebody named their little princess Keisha May, and their last name was Ash. Now, don't say that out loud in church, okay? I'm not sure we can say that out loud. If you, if, you, if you don't get it, I'm told you'll hear it really well if you say it fast with an Italian accent. Now, maybe I'm pushing the edge there a little bit. It ties in, though. It ties in. Here's, here's how it ties in. Names are important. In the series we're looking at, we're going to look at four names that were given to Jesus. Four names or four titles given to Jesus in Isaiah 9. Each of these names gives us a powerful look at who God is and an invitation to how each of us 
uh, need to know him and how each of us need him in our lives. Isaiah's prophecy about the coming of Jesus is given over 700 years before Jesus is born. And the four names are found in Isaiah 9, 6, but we're going to read today starting in chapter 7 and just hit a few selected verses here. So chapter 7, verse 14, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Skipping down to chapter 9, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And then this next sentence outlines the topics for our series. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on forever. So today we're going to look at Wonderful Counselor, but first as we get into this series, I think it's really helpful to understand the background of this prophecy. This was written in a really difficult, terrifying time in the life of Judah. It was 730 years before Jesus came. The rising power in the Middle East at that time was Assyria, and all the other nations were terrified of their power. So all the other nations around Israel formed this alliance, kind of like Middle East version of NATO, to defend against Assyria. The nations of this alliance came to King Ahaz in in Jerusalem and and said, if Judah doesn't join the alliance, then we are going to come to war against you and defeat you, and we'll put a king in your place who will play ball with us. So imagine Ahaz's feelings during this time. Threatened by Assyria, the most feared military power in the area of that time, and the alliance of nations on the other side of him, and they're sandwiched in the middle, surrounded and grossly inferior in terms of their power. Then on top of that, Assyria comes to Ahaz and says, well, if you join me, I'll protect you. So Ahaz doesn't know what to do. And in walks Isaiah, the prophet, with a message from God. And he says to Ahaz, Take no side. Just have faith in God, and God will protect you. And to assure Ahaz, God says through Isaiah, Don't worry, I'm going to give you a miraculous sign to prove to you that I'm going to protect you so you can trust me. Ahaz wasn't really a God-following king, so this is is kind of a big deal of God saying that to him. And and, and, and a sign, we would think that would be comforting, right? I mean, how many times have you in life in a difficult spot asked God for a sign? I mean, that's something we think we would like, but... In the context of that is where we get to this prophecy. And Isaiah says, Ahaz, here's your sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Now, here's where things get interesting. Scholars actually tell us that there is a partial fulfillment of this prophecy in that time. We actually see it in in chapter 8, that there was this important child, we don't know a lot about it, that was a miracle, a sign to them that was born. But, But this is also apparent that Isaiah is referring to a child of much greater significance because of what he says in chapter 9. I mean, he names this child Mighty God, Everlasting Father, names that are not, you know, appropriate for a mere human child. So for Ahaz, there was a fulfillment of his day and uh, that invited Ahaz to trust God. But there's also in this prophecy a greater fulfillment in Jesus, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, and prince of peace. So think of it like this. 
This last summer, we took a vacation to Colorado, and my boys and I did a couple high mountain hikes. One of them went to a lake, and along the way, we kept thinking, I must be there. It was kind of one of those, are we there yet type of, type of hikes, you know? We would rise over one summit and see this beautiful lake only to see another rise on the other side of that lake. So we weren't really there. Now, the first few lakes were really awesome, beautiful, fulfilling, rewarding, but they weren't the final destination. And that's really a lot how Bible prophecy, when we read it in the Old Testament, often works. There is an encouragement that is fulfilled in that day for the people in that instance, but it is also pointing to something much higher and bigger in Jesus. But that often begs a question when we understand that. And here's the question. How would prophecy about a child of Messiah that wouldn't happen for over 700 years encourage and speak to Ahaz when he's got an army right outside his walls, breathing down his throat? See, some look at this and they say, well, well, see, the Bible is problematic. It's, it's just kind of, you know, it doesn't address real people issues. It's just kind of pie in the sky, right? And that's how many I know who, and maybe this is where you feel, and I, I get this. I've been there too, where you, if you're uncertain in your faith, you, you kind of think that about life, and maybe you think that about Christmas even. You might say, I love the beauty. I love family getting together. I, I love the tinsel. I love the lights. I love the music. Well, I, you know, most of us probably get a little tired of the music maybe, but, but we generally love it. I love the manger. I, I, I love the peace to all men kind of thing, but, but then there's real life. Difficulty in my job, conflict in my family, chronic pain that I'm suffering with a disease, death of a loved one or impending death of a loved one. And so these heartwarming Christmas stories and of Jesus and angels and romantic songs and Hallmark movies and create these kind of dreams that are nice, but not realistic. It doesn't, it doesn't live where I live. So if that's how you feel, if that's how you think, then, then welcome to Ahaz's world because Ahaz and the people of Judah would have been asking that same thing. It sure is a nice thought, Isaiah, but there's a real army with a reputation for utter brutality surrounding us. How does this help us? How does the promise of a Messiah in the future help us? Now, what they... What they didn't know was that this promise of the Messiah was actually leading them to something well beyond the problem they were facing, to go to the very root of the problem of humanity in two ways. And first, it's in sending Jesus, God dealt with sin at its root. So if you feel like there's an army of pain and, uh, and just surrounding you and, 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 and in a very real way, your problem is not so much the army outside your walls. Your problem goes deeper than that. Your problem isn't the relational betrayal, the pain, the health issues, or the economic needs that you're facing today. The root of all of our problems is our separation from God. It's, it's, it's sin. All fear, all calamity, all evil, all betrayal, all the lashing out that we do, all the desires that drive us to be irresponsible at times and create problems in our finances all come back to sin. And sin is an issue of the heart so much more than it's an issue of things out there. See, in other words, if God were to come to you and take away your problems with one snap of the finger but didn't fix your heart, you'd just create new problems. Tolkien, the, you know, the famous author of Lord of the Rings, uh, in one of his other works, compares evil to a shadow, saying this. He says, always after defeat and a respite, 
the shadow takes another shape and grows again. So what he's saying is every time you conquer a problem and you defeat it, after a while the shadow, the problem reemerges. So think about this, even just a simple technology in our world today. Can you believe it's 11 years ago that the iPhone came out? seems like it's been out forever. What would we do without smartphones? In many ways, the smartphones have made our lives better and easier and safer. You can take a video. You can do all sorts of stuff. You can call anyone anytime, anywhere. But they also have created new problems. They make us vulnerable to cyber attack. They, they have brought out and encouraged a whole new kind of addiction and relational breakdown. So why is that? It's because the source of the problem, the source of the shadows and evil lie not outside of us in the things around us, but they lie within our heart. And see, the power of this prophecy is that God is promising freedom from sin at its root. In speaking to Ahaz, this evil king who was so caught in sin, God is not only offering him hope and an invitation to trust him and return to him and know him and experience his goodness again, but he also speaks of our ultimate need for someone to save us from the foolishness and sin of our own hearts by transforming and freeing our hearts. See, we often want to be delivered from pain of a difficult marriage or a relationship, but God wants your, wants your heart. He wants to deal with the sin and selfishness that broke that relationship in the first place. We want God to heal our sickness, and God wants to heal that too. But even more than that, God wants to deal with the curse of death that causes diseases. We want God to give us victory in a situation where we feel like we're constantly being defeated, but God wants to end all conflict and eliminate the desire for vengeance, replacing it with even love for our enemy in our hearts. And even though I know better, I, like many of you, still fall into problematic thinking around this. We tend to think, God, why did you prophesy the Messiah and then wait for him to come for 730 years? And then when he came... Why did he just not solve everything all at once? Why did he just not end sin and sickness and suffering and all of it and destroy evil all at once? When we ask that, though, we have to ask ourselves a question. If the first time Jesus came, God had said, I'm going to destroy all evil at noon today, and he had done that, would any of us be here? See, that's the reason God didn't come as a soldier and a warrior to defeat our problems. He came as a baby to identify with us, to live like us, to die in our place, to take upon himself our guilt and our shame and our punishment so that he could touch us and he could heal us at the heart level. See, that's one of the ways the promise of the Messiah, even in Ahaz's time, addressed the evil Ahaz was facing. The second way God speaks to Ahaz and us in this prophecy is this. The the names, through the names and titles of Jesus, they tell us who God is to us. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. See, the rest of our time together today, we're just going to look at the first one, Wonderful Counselor. Who needs Christmas? We all do because we all need a Wonderful Counselor in our lives. So Wonderful Counselor is, is kind of translated from two Hebrew words. One is Pele and one is Yahweh. So Pele prophetically means, of course, a great soccer player. We all know that. Pele means wonderful, too awesome for words. There are no words great enough to tell you how wise and awesome and wonderful and loving you are, Jesus. 
Yawitz means, it's translated counselor. It means one who advises, one who instructs. But it's a little more than we think of a counselor. He guides us from a position of authority. See, this isn't the friend who comes over late at night and drinks a beer with you while you moan and and then at the end says, yeah, yeah, that stinks, that hurts so much, yeah, I hate him too. No, this is someone you can come to with your worst problems and he solves them. He leads you through them. So Isaiah speaks of Jesus coming as this baby who will become this most wonderful counselor anyone could ever imagine. To get a little more insight into that, I think the writer of Hebrews in chapter 4 gives us really beautiful insight into this wonderful counselor. He says, for we do not have a high priest. So the writer is using the idea of high priest to refer to Jesus. And it's interesting that the high priest in that culture of that day was the counselor and advisor with the most authority of anyone. So he says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence that we'll receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So even this wonderful counselor, even though it's Jesus, he's God, he's the creator, the ultimate authority, the ultimate power, the only one who fully knows all truth and wisdom, we don't just approach him as a king, who rules over us, but as a brother who lived among us, enduring the same pain, the same temptation that any of us have endured. We have a wonderful counselor who is absolutely approachable. See, Jesus was born in a stable because Joseph didn't have enough money to convince anyone else to give up a room for him. And and let's remember, the stable wasn't any kind of idyllic idyllic place. It was smelly, it was uncomfortable, it was unpleasant. This was not, uh, you know, cinnamon-scented candles with apple cider and the smell of pine needles. When Jesus was presented in the temple as it was required for all the firstborns as an infant, his parents could only afford the pauper's sacrifice, a pigeon, not a lamb. Jesus grew up in the town that was kind of ridiculed as the white trash town of Israel during that day. At his birth, Jesus set the pattern for his life. You see, at his birth, Jesus lay in a dirty, musty feeding trough, and at the end of his life, he lay on a splintered cross. At his birth, he was rejected by an innkeeper. At his death, the religious leaders and the crowds all yelled, crucify him. At his birth, Jesus was wrapped in rags. At his death, he was stripped naked for all to see and then wrapped in in whatever rags they could find and not even given a formal burial, just kind of thrown in a place to to be there for a few days because they couldn't formally bury him. At his birth, Jesus was ignored by most of the world. And at his death, he experienced the judgment of God meant for all of those who had ignored God as the Father ignored him and turned his back on him. Why? Why? Simply this. God loves us enough to come as Jesus and bear all of the rejection and poverty and sin that every single human being has ever experienced or done so that when you and I come to God, we can come to him with confidence. We can know that God's not going to reject us. He's not going to, he's not going to judge us, that all the judgment, all the rejection was borne by him already on our behalf. So Isaiah 53 puts it this way. Surely, He took our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But the reality is God wasn't punishing him. 
Jesus. It was God willingly taking our punishment upon himself. It goes on in the next verse. And he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. See, God and Jesus loves us so much, wants us forgiven and restored in right relationship with him so much that he took all of our sin, all of our sorrow, and he made them his very own. There's this verse I memorized in high school, and I go back to it often in James 1.5. It says this, If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. Those words, without finding fault, those are such powerful words. You see, so many times when I need wisdom, maybe you're the same in life, and when I've gotten myself into a tight spot, I've usually gotten there because of some of my own stupidity and some of my own sinfulness. And when we tend to feel like that and we try to pray in that instance, asking God for wisdom, our prayers usually go, if not like this, in our mind they're going like this, Hey God, it's Ross again. That stupid oaf who doesn't deserve anything because I can't even get my head out of the sand. You know, and now I'm asking for help once again for the same thing I've screwed up on so many other times. Your thoughts ever go like that in your prayer for God when you repeated failure in your life? And see, what we believe in those moments that God is thinking is this. We believe God is thinking, how can Ross have the odd? to come and ask me for help when he knows what is right and he just keeps messing up over and over and over again. But that's not what James tells us. That's not who this wonderful counselor is. He tells us we have a wonderful counselor to whom we can go and that we will not be told we are stupid. We will, he will not focus on our faults. No, God gives wisdom without saying, I told you so without criticizing us about our foolishness. Why? Because Jesus has already taken that condemnation on himself on our behalf. So when I mess up and treat Wendy horribly, when I've damaged my kids' uh, view of how wonderfully they are made, when I've damaged their view of who their father God is because of my bad parenting, if I come to God saying, God, I need wisdom, help me, I... I need to work this out. I need you to help redeem this mess I've made. God will absolutely answer that prayer and lead you and give you wisdom. So we have a wonderful counselor who is absolutely approachable. Hebrews also gives us more insight, teaching us that we have a wonderful counselor who listens and cares with such great empathy. See, Hebrews promises us when we're tempted or in pain that Jesus listens to us with great care and empathy. Why? Because he's been there. He's been where we are. He knows and has lived through the pain and the suffering and the loss and the temptation and the confusion and those moments of not knowing what to do next, just like we face in our life. Remember, it says... For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. So what's that mean for us? We get to approach him and his grace with confidence knowing that we will receive it, knowing that we will find the grace to help us in whatever moment we are facing. Some of you 
when you look on side of your life right now and look around you, you acknowledge, I am in a time of great need. I need someone who knows me, who knows what I'm facing, has the wisdom and power to help me get through this without giving up on what is best and right and good. Because when we're facing the desperate moments in life, it's so, we know what's right, best and good, but it's so easy to just, in the emotion of it, the tension of it, to give up on right, best and good and just settle for whatever will get us through it. I need someone in those moments who can heal me who I, because I feel so broken because I just want to run away from everyone and everything. I need a wonderful counselor. A wonderful counselor means that God came to Jesus to people like you and I who had problems with the intent of helping us out of our problems, being with us, being in our corner, supporting, encouraging, inviting, challenging, picking us up, walking with us, helping us just take the next step in the right direction. J.D. Greer is a pastor and author, and he once said this. He said, every miracle that Jesus ever did started with a problem. See, Jesus didn't do parlor tricks like putting his disciples in boxes and making them disappear so he could show off his power and wisdom. No, every miracle Jesus did went straight to the heart of meeting hurting, fearful, broken, confused people right where they were in that moment with great empathy and power to bring healing, resolution, wisdom, and goodness to even their most desperate of circumstances. See, some of us here this weekend, well, you're in a state of life now where you're problem-free. So enjoy it. It'll last a couple days, right? For the rest of us, Jesus meets us in our problems, in our sorrow. If you've lost someone and you're grieving, Jesus is there crying with you. See, we sometimes get angry at God in those moments, but Jesus never wanted that death to be there. He didn't want us to experience death. It's our sin that brought that. So he meets us in those moments and he cries with us. He wails with us. He feels the hollowness of your loss. God feels deeply whatever you feel. He meets you right where you are because he knows. He knows. He's experienced it. So how can this change the way we live? Well, I think we can just learn what it looks like to engage this wonderful counselor and fully receive his awesome help. And that starts, honestly, just by being completely honest. Every single counselor you'll ever talk to will tell you, you, until you're fully honest with where you are, you will never be able to figure out what you need and where you need to go in life. See, until you are completely honest with your problem, until you're honest about your sin, your wonderful counselor can't do a lot for you. See, we all live with fear of being completely honest, don't we, though? And, and for good reason, for because we've been betrayed. We've been, we've been treated poorly when we were completely honest in the past. And so we, we hide, we protect, and we put on a face, right? But until you're honest, you can't get help. Until you're honest, any grace waiting for you from God or others can't be received fully in any kind of a full measure. Because without truth, there is no full grace. I mean, think about it. Jesus died to give you grace. But until you recognize your need and you turn to him and follow him, you don't receive that grace. Grace and forgiveness and love, they're, they're there waiting for you. 
but you're not taking hold of it. Years ago, there was someone close to my life who was stressed out at work. His marriage and family were suffering. His uh, health was suffering. He was, ex- he was one of these guys extremely driven, just working all the time. In a rare moment, when we were sitting down talking, he said to me, Ross, I'm doing this for my family. This is my time in life to get ahead. What I'm doing is going to really benefit my family later on when I get to the other side of this time of my career. But for now, it's all about me becoming all I can be, making the big money, making the big difference, being the best I can be. And I challenged this thinking in that moment, but what I wish I would have said is I wish I would have said, so Bob, that's not his real name. So Bob, you need to stop making excuses. You need to admit you're an addict. See, we can be addicted to drugs or alcohol. We can be addicted to food. We can be addicted to porn or sex. or We can be addicted to needing to be wanted. Or we can be addicted to adrenaline rush. Or we can be addicted to the praise of other people and needing to be the best, the pride of success. And, and when we are, the result is that you are willing to live your life in a way that will give up anything, family, friendships, health, your marriage, even your faith, to try to fill that need. Until we're willing to face the truth, it doesn't matter. God has all the grace waiting for you in the world. It it doesn't matter if your family or friends or your church are there waiting with open arms with all the grace in the world to embrace you. You will never experience the full measure of grace and healing until you honestly face the truth. We fear that. And what we fear most is we fear when we say the truth that God's going to walk away from us just like other people have. But that isn't the case. The scripture shows us that this wonderful counselor, instead of walking away, walks to you and then walks with you with great empathy and love. See, we see this in Jesus over and over again. One of my favorites, some of you say, I probably say this too often, is John 4. Jesus talks to this really messed up woman with a string of broken relationships and at the very moment she's in the middle of an affair and she's... She's driven by this need to be needed and it's destroying her life and making her unhappy in life. And she tried to hide it from Jesus because she perceived he was some sort of holy man and didn't want the shame, didn't want to be that revealed, didn't want to be rejected again. But, but Jesus, through the discernment of the Holy Spirit, just says to her, hey, I know you've had five husbands and the man you're currently with isn't even your husband. You're living in adultery. And Jesus did it in such a way that this woman knows in such a profound way that he knew it from the beginning, that God knew about this from the beginning, and yet God in Jesus still came to her, still pursued her, still wanted her in relationship with him. See, the wonderful counselor has the power and wisdom to solve your problems, and he comes after you, pursues you to show you that you are safe and you are loved by him. Which leads us to the next action step that we can take. We have to want to be healed. In the very next chapter of John, after that story, Jesus comes upon this lame man who's been paralyzed for 38 years and asks him, do you want to be healed? Why would Jesus ask that question? I mean, come on, who doesn't want to be healed? The reality is, all of us don't want to be healed from one time, at one time or another in our life. What we want is we want to experience the benefits of the healing, the pain and the problems going away, but we don't necessarily want to walk through the painful choices and beliefs and, and actions that, that, that caused that problem in the first place to healing. It's really fascinating. One of the greatest atheist intellectuals of the last century said later in his life, he said, when I was young, my doubts were not honest. 
I wanted to doubt Christianity and God because I knew if I didn't doubt Christianity that I couldn't do what I wanted to. And what I wanted to do is I wanted to have sex with any girl I wanted to at any time I wanted to. See, often we want God to clean up our mess because it's painful, it's yucky, it's frustrating, it's shameful. But we want God to clean up our mess without dealing with the choices and the beliefs and the patterns of sin that got us into the mess in the first place. The early early church uh, father, St. Augustine, one of the greats of the faith, once put the same ambivalence in his own words and when he wrote in his confessions book, he said, God, make me pure, just not yet. Right? The question is, are you really wanting healing and change? Are you willing to face and deal with whatever Jesus leads you to face and deal with? Which actually takes us to the third step that we can take in action to this day. We do whatever God asks and says. We talked about tithing last week. I've almost never heard anyone who's tithed consistently throughout their life complain, critique about tithing or even question the value of it in their lives. Almost everyone who I've seen tithe on a regular basis only talks about the honor and the blessing it brings in their lives. You see, if we don't do what God says, we won't know the blessings of what God invites us to in doing that. We can intellectually argue all day long about what he wants and how if we should do it or not, but until we do what God asks us to do, we will not experience the blessing that he wants us to experience through that moment of obedience in our lives. So sometimes God even asks us to do things that don't make sense. Once Jesus healed a man's eyes by spitting in the mud and putting mud on his eyes and, and then told him to walk across town to the specific pool to go wash, wash in where he'd be healed. So just, just imagine this for a moment. Imagine you being that blind man walking through Easton with mud globs on your eyes trying to get to the big walnut river to jump in the river and get healed. And this from Jesus who had just previously, not that long before, healed blind people by a touch and with a word. I mean, why? Why? Jesus one day is talking to the fishermen and he says, you know, they've been all out all night fishing and he, they're, they're in the process of taking the nets in and washing them and gathering them into the boat nice. And, and, and he says, take the nets you've got and cast them out on the other side. So, so think about this. Do all the, they have to do all the work of gathering the net into the boat, stepping through, the, trying not to get caught and trip on it, just to turn around to throw it out the other side of the eight-foot-wide boat, which has probably drifted far enough right now that they're throwing it into the exact same spot they just were in a minute ago. Why? Peter needs money for taxes, and Jesus tells him to go fishing and check the fish's mouth, and then it'll find a gold coin to pay both his tax and Jesus' tax. And why did he just not do the old coin trick and just kind of pull it out from behind his ear? You know, I mean, why? Doing what God asks doesn't always make sense. But in order to have all the goodness that the wonderful counselor wants to do in our lives, we have to put our yes on the table before we know what he's asking. We have to give God a blank check. And that's hard because nowhere else in any of our lives do we do that. None of us are ever going to sign on the dotted line and say, hey, I'll just find out what I signed for later. At least I hope you don't do that in contracts, right? We just don't do that in life. We always want to know. We always want to know why we want to be in control. 
So these action steps can be summed up that the, this wonderful counselor who's great at asking questions asks us three questions on a regular basis. Will you be completely honest with me? Do you really want to be healed? And will you do whatever I ask? Worship team, go ahead and come on up. Allow me to close this way. Wonderful counselor, the wonderful part points to the awesome power, wisdom, love of Jesus who is God, the creator of all. The counselor points to the fact that he's tender and he's ready and he's willing to listen. He cares. He feels deeply with you and wants to join you in solving this problem. Now listen carefully because I think this is kind of important. Often the way God helps you in your problems is through allowing you to see how awesome and how wonderful he is. Which means he may not give you the solution you want in the way you want it. But in all the things that are going on in your life, he's with you. He's loving you. He's even taking and turning the painful things in your life and turning them and shaping them to become in the end something beautiful and good. Even the things that he did not cause, that evil caused, he's going to take those in your life and turn them into something beautiful and good. Even in the worst days of your confusion and fear and pain, God is there with you. He's feeling deeply with you what you're going through. He's working with you and he's for you. The question is, will we stay the course with him instead of letting your pain, our pain, cause us to step away from him and step away from the truth and instead to pursue what we think will be the band-aid we need and the solution to be happy again that we need? Because here's the truth. You and I, none of us, are smart enough counselors to consistently point our lives in the right direction. Every single one of us needs a wonderful counselor. And that's the reason we need Christ at Christmas. Would you stand with me as we continue to worship and prepare to receive communion? See, it's in this act of communion that we all together just remember and acknowledge our need to be saved. We acknowledge our frailness, our sin. We acknowledge and worship Jesus that we need him as our wonderful counselor who so compassionately and so purposely loves each and every one of us that he came to live with us and show us how approachable he wants to be. He chose to take his punishment upon himself so that he could give us grace, he could give us forgiveness, freedom from the shadows of our hearts. Lord, even as we turn our hearts to you again in worship and come receive communion, we acknowledge we acknowledge our need for you. We acknowledge our sin. We acknowledge, we acknowledge that we don't have the answers so much of the time. And Lord, would you just come to us and help us receive your grace. Help us receive you. Help us walk with you, our wonderful counselor. Lord, in our pain, instead of holding you off at a different distance, would you help us receive and experience you as being there crying with us, grieving with us, frustrated, maybe even angry with us at what we're facing so that we can walk with you through whatever we're facing to the goodness you have on the other side of that. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon audio. If you're loving Quest Podcast, let us know on Facebook or Twitter by using the hashtag GoToQuest. 
For more information on Quest, who we are, and what God is doing here, or if you would like to help support Quest financially, please visit us at gotoquest.org. That's G-O-T-O-Quest.org. Thanks for listening.